James. We're continuing our study through the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 4. Uh, if you haven't gotten one of these, you can grab one. It's a uh, devotional through the book of James uh, that kind of goes along with what we're studying each week. Uh, as I said, we're in James chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, starting in verse 13 today. Uh, we're just going to do verses 13 through 17 today. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17 today. Uh, as you're turning, just a couple things for you for, to remind yourselves. Uh, here at Remedy, we want to approach every Sunday in four different ways. We're eager. We're super excited to see our, our, our family, our church family here, and we can't wait to hear from God's Word. We're, ex- we're also expectant. We're expecting God's going to do something. We're early. We get here before church starts and talk to people in the lobby and get to know them. And we come every Sunday. There's not a reason that we miss. So eager, expected early every Sunday. We want to approach every Sunday that way. Um, a couple of announcements for you as well. First is we're going to have a lunch in the lawn. And if it's raining, lunch in the lobby uh, today after second service. So uh, after first, go home and get some food and come back and uh, hang out with us. It'll be around 1245 or so. Uh, also, we have a church work day, so everybody that wants to help out, uh, it's next Saturday, June 29th at 8 a.m. You don't have to be particularly um, handy to be at that. So if you, actually just if you have hands, that's all that's required, uh, because there's lots and lots and lots of stuff to do, and so we would love for you, really, for real, to come be a part of that. Uh, we really can use the help, because there's so many things, I mean, some, some people just be putting pine straw out. You, you don't have to be handy to put pine straw on the ground. Um, so come be a part of that. That's next Saturday, June 29th. We'll start at 8 a.m. Uh, and it'll go for a while that morning. Uh, anyway, uh, each week we pray for something as we start off that's local or international. So I'm going to start with the people group of the day. You can go ahead and put that slide up. You can see that they're in Burma. Uh, some call it Myanmar, I call it Burma. Uh, but Rakhine, you can see there's almost 2.7 million people. When we say unreached, we mean, uh, it's not that they've heard the gospel and they've said, nah, I'm not, that's not for me. It's that they're completely unreached. The gospel has never got to this particular people group. So 2.7 million people in Burma never even heard of Jesus. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I watched a video. You go to joshuaproject.net. It's pretty grainy, but it talks about these people um, and what's their life like, etc. You can go and do that. But we want to pray for them. Uh, and the reason why we do this, just so you know, is so that you realize that there's people all over, the, all over the world that look nothing like us, that are nothing like us, and God wants them to be in heaven. Um, God wants every representation of every ethnic group. There's about 16,000. This is one out of 16,000. And he wants someone um, from every single one of them. And so we want to pray that God would do that. Uh, if you believe Matthew 24, 14, once all the ethnic groups have been reached, then, uh, then the end will come. Jesus comes back. This gospel must be preached to all the ethne, all the ethnic groups, and then the end will come. And so Lord willing, uh, once that happens... Um, Jesus will come back. We're six, like I said, there's about 16,000 people groups and about half have been reached or so. So you can keep up with that on joshuaproject.net. But anyway, we're going to pray for the people group of the day and then we'll, we'll jump in starting in James. So uh, let's pray for the people group. Lord, thank you so much for the Rakim. We know that you've created them in your image and you love them. Uh, and though uh, roughly all 2.7 million of them don't know you, God, um, you want them to. And so I pray that missionaries will be raised up out of this church, out of this country, all over the world. Um, they don't have to be from the U.S. They can be from anywhere. But people that love Jesus and have a deep desire to spread uh, 
a knowledge of who Christ is, that they would go to this particular people group in Burma and that they would reach them, Lord, and that all 2.7 million would meet Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, as I said, you can open up to James 4. Uh, if you want to, we stand as we read God's Word. So if you can, stand. If, if you can't, that's fine. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. So starting at verse 13, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend uh, a year there and trade and make a profit. Uh, for, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So one of the uh, tenets uh, of Christianity over the last 500 years from the Reformation until now is something called uh, perseverance of the saints, um, also known as once saved, always saved, to, to make it shorthand and easy. Uh, but perseverance of the saints um, is the idea that the saints will persevere to the end once they're saved, that they will persevere throughout their entire faith, and at the very end that they'll stay faithful or they'll stay uh, trusting and believing in God and that they'll go to heaven. But the question can be is, how do you know? How do you know that your faith will persevere? How do you know? Uh, and of course, your answer should be God. <laughs> That's how I know. And that would be correct. You'll be exactly right if you say God. Um, let me read a text to you. This is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And so it tells us uh, how we know. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, this is Paul, he says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he looks at them and he says, um, your salvation has been given to you. And so as, as someone who's been uh, saved by Christ, it's time for you to live out what we call sanctification. That's the process of becoming more and more Christ-like. <laughs> Work that out. And that shows, since you're, since you're doing that, you're not, you're not working for your salvation. You are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as you do that, it shows that you will persevere to the end. Now, that's our responsibility. And then the next verse, he says this. For, so he's making an argument, for... It is God who works in you. So we know that as we do it, we're, we're really like you're really making decisions as you go through life to either choose to do this or not to do this, to become more Christ-like or not. But all the while, while you're doing it, behind everything, as it says in this verse, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as you're doing it, it's really God moving inside of you, causing you to will, to want to, and, and to work, to want to do things for his glory. So ultimately, you can say, why will I, be, why will I persevere uh, in the faith? Because of God. But what I want to do today is zoom down into this part right here, into verse 12, where we're talking about us and what, what it is for us to look like and what it is that we do every single day. Ultimately, yes, God is the one that causes us to persevere. But Paul and James, so really Jesus, since they wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit, don't want us to forget that it really is our responsibility also to obey Philippians 2.12 to work out our responsibility. And so uh, they want us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now we're not working on, we're not earning our salvation, but nevertheless, since we have been saved, we are truly making real decisions 
that grow us spiritually, all the while while we know it's God. And so, but today for this particular sermon, we're going to concentrate on our responsibility, not the ultimate hand of God. And so, we want to look at what what it looks like for us to work at our perseverance. So, back to the question: How do you know if your faith will persevere? How do you know? How do you know? Well, when we look at verse 13 through 17 today in James chapter 4, he gives us, and we could, there's a billion all over the Bible, but James in this particular verse is going to tell us four ways uh, of how we can know we're going to persevere in our faith. Four ways. Now, you can look at these four, and these four things will be good indicators to know that you're persevering in the faith. Again, you can look all over the Bible and find 400, right? But we're just going to look at these four. This is what we're going to look at. And these will serve for us as I think, quite convicting. So in context, when it says in verse 13, come now you who say, who, who's the you? Who's, who is James talking about? Well, in context, the you is, James is addressing traveling Christian merchants. So as they were there in the first century, they would travel around and they would try to go to this particular city and sell some things and make some money. And they would travel around and they were making plans. And as they were doing it, we're going to go there. Tomorrow we'll go there. Tomorrow we'll go there. We're going to trade. We're going to make a profit. Um, so James is not saying, in context, he's not saying that making money is wrong because we know that it's not in, in and of itself. The love of money is what's wrong, not just having money or making money. And so, uh, of course, there are wrong ways to make money, but making money in general, it's not wrong. But in context, that he's, that's who he's talking about. So let's look at, at the verse here. Uh, I'm going to look at 13 and 14a. So it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. So in the immediate context, while this applies to traveling Christian merchants, this really can apply to all of us. The, the, the principles that are being laid down for us can apply to all, to all to us and help us understand what our lives should look like day to day as Christ followers whenever we are making plans and living life, etc. And these people are living like they're immortal, like they're going to live forever on earth. We're going to go there. We're going to do this. They're, they're living quite selfishly. And so the first way that we can realize that we're going to persevere in our faith is this. Number one, um, we won't live selfishly. Instead, we'll live for Jesus. We won't live selfishly. Instead, we'll live for Jesus. Um, the problem is not the planning in and of itself, but planning in such a way that God has no place in the plans. That's the problem. That's how David Platt describes it. Sam Alberry says, uh, we'll know where we'll be in a million years, but we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We know where we'll be in a million years, but we have no idea where we'll be tomorrow. In other, and we should live that way. Meaning, Jesus really could come back like at any moment. And therefore, we should live in that, in that way. The, the brass tacks of what, what we're getting at here is... Um, your future, the way you plan your future, the way you think about your future is your, 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 your plans, the way that you're making each day in general, are they profoundly affected by this truth as you plan? Jesus could come back at any second. That's the key that he's getting at. And that's the way he wants us to live. Whenever we, um, whenever we are thinking about perseverance of the faith, there's a certain way that we should live and it shouldn't be that we're immortal. Here's my illustration. Perhaps you did this when you were a child. I did all the time. Uh, remember back when you were kids and you were home alone, uh, you either, uh, 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 if you're like me, you're a, a 
an only child or you had siblings, nevertheless, but you were, your parents were gone all day and you had the house all to yourself with you or your siblings all day and you did whatever you wanted. You played all the things that you wanted. Um, then at the end of the day, you look all over the house and you realize th there's a lot of things that have to get done before mom and dad get home or else I'm in big trouble. There's a lot of things that got to get done or I'm in huge trouble. And so at the very end, for those last 30 minutes of the day, you finally get everything done that you're supposed to do. That last 30 minutes of that eight to 10 hour day that your parents are gone without your parents there, in principle, without the legalism, that's how you're supposed to live every moment as a Christ follower. That last 30 minutes of the day when you're, before your parents come home. You don't live selfishly in that moment. And without the legalism, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do that your parents required of you to get done or you're fi fixing everything that was messed up, right? And in general, what we're saying, what, what he's saying here is the way that the mindset and the intentionality that you, that you acted those last 30 minutes of that big, huge eight-hour day where you did everything you wanted and you were serious and focused and you knew you had to get stuff done, that's, how, that's the mindset without the legalism that he wants to take into our life right now and say, that's how we're supposed to live every day. We're supposed to live in such a way with the profound truth that Jesus literally could come back at any second. And when he comes back, what do I want to be doing in those moments? Like it really, I, I really care about what I'm doing in those moments. I don't want to be doing anything crazy. That's what he's saying here. So whenever we're thinking about... Uh, how we know we're going to persevere, it means we're not living selfishly because we really care that we're honoring God with every moment. We're, we really care and we know that Jesus is going to come back. Instead, we'll live for Jesus. We live for Jesus. It means that we really believe that God is sovereign over life and death and we really live like it. So that's the first thing that we see here in this text, that how we know we're going to really uh, persevere in the faith to the end is that we have a mindset that says, if Jesus is really going to come back at any moment, I'm not going to live for me. I'm going to live for him at every moment. So the next thing we can see here in, is in the second half of 14, when he says this, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Calvin, when he says, what is your life? John Calvin, he says, for he who remembers the shortness of his life will have his audacity easily checked so as not to extend too far his resolves. So he's, he's realizing that we should realize our life is major short. So what is your life? Your life is short. It's a mist. This is literally a vapor. Um, in the Greek, atmos. So it's like totally totally short. So I can remember in college, there was this guy, um, he, he wanted to put on cologne. And whenever he put on the cologne, uh, he didn't want to spray himself because he thought it would be like obnoxiously smelling. It would smell and it would be too stifling. So he would just spray it and then he would just run through it like that, you know, and it would just get it on him in a light little mist. But my point is this, like imagine spraying your cologne or your perfume and you run through it and he had to run through it super fast or else it would be gone. That length that it lasts in the air, the speed of which you have to run to get through it, that's your life. That's how long your life is. Like shoot a cologne, run through, or else it's gone. That's what he's telling us. Our life is so short, biblically, in comparison with how long we will spend with Jesus. It's as long as a cologne spray that you got to run through to catch before it's gone. That's how long our life is. 
And so it only makes sense then, therefore, to live for the eternal river of eternal life than for the short spray mist of this short earthly life. It only makes sense to live for the eternal river of the eternal life that never ends. The eternal river of eternal life rather than the short spray mist of this earthly life. It does not make sense to live primarily for our earthly life and not our eternal life. All of your life is for God. And so the second way we realize if we're really persevering to the end is not only number one, that we won't live selfishly, we'll live for Jesus, but also we remember constantly that not just that Jesus is gonna come back, but we also remember this short life that I have right now is for God. Everything I do is for God. That's number two. What is your life? It's a mist. And when you do that, you'll pray things like Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. At every moment, let those things happen. You'll believe verses like Titus 2.14. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from a lawless and to purify himself for a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. I am possessed by Jesus, not me. Jesus owns me now in a good way. It's not like bad, right? In a good way. I am thankful that he has chosen me and made me a part of his family. He calls the shots. And now he's created me and you, if you're in Christ, to be zealous for his good works. You realize that you will only be alive tomorrow if God allows it. And so in the scope of all of life, this verse compares us to a mist, not even a full raindrop. Just a fraction of a raindrop in the whole life that's just a deluge compared to when we add our spiritual, our our eternal life. We're just a mist. So we live and we plan and we work on this short life in such a way that we won't waste it. We won't waste it. Um, I'm going to read to you the seven minutes that changed a generation. I don't know how familiar you are with the Passion Conferences or back in the year 2000 when they had this massive like four-day festival where everybody just slept out in the, out in the fields. But at one point, they invited John Piper to come speak and he, he preached this sermon. It's, a book's been, been written on it called Don't Waste Your Life. But in that sermon, there was a seven-minute excerpt. If you can Google this, the seven minutes that changed a generation from Don't Waste Your Life. This particular Three paragraphs I'm going to read changed a total generation of college students in the year 2000. This is what he said. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. He's talking to college students. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and to die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchangeable, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. 
But I know that not everybody in this crowd, there was probably about 20,000 people there. But I know not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care if you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. If you could just have a good job and a good husband or a good wife and a good ki- some good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could just have that, you'd be satisfied, even without God. That is a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, he's a pastor at a church at this particular point. At our church, we got word that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes gave way in their car. They went over the cliff, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after most people in America and their counterparts have retired to throw their wives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. Is that a tragedy? No, it's not a tragedy. It's a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. And he reads from Reader's Digest. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting seashells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all of my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Those seven minutes changed a generation. When those college students heard that, Many of them went to missions. Many of them changed the way they, they changed their life. They remembered that their life is short and all of their life is for God. Even in late retirement, from 60 to 80, you're still Christ's missionary. So if we want to write a book on ourselves, a Christian biography about your, and the name of your book and the name of my book would be Missed. That's it. Vapor. So all of it should count for Christ. And that's the second way we know that we're persevering in the faith. We remember that all of our short life is for God. All of our short life is for God. Third thing we can see is in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we would do this or we would do that. In other words, we should live like God is in control because he is. He wills what happens in our lives. So the third thing is the way that we know that we're persevering in the faith is we submit to his will and stop trying to accomplish our own. We submit to his will, 
and stop trying to accomplish our own. Everything we do, everything we accomplish, everything we attain is ultimately under the sovereign will of God. There, there's this there's this Twitter account a long time ago. I think it's not even on there anymore. It's, it's called Christianity, except it started with an X. And it's making fun of Calvinists who always say, if the Lord wills. And he said, cautious Calvinist adds one more, if the Lord wills, prior to the other, if the Lord wills, just to be safe. Um, because and if the Lord wills, we're going to go do this, if the Lord wills. You know, making fun of cautious Calvinists. And it's funny, right? Um, but the gist is actually exactly right. It's okay, and I think it's right for us to even verbally say when we speak to people, hey, we should go do that if the Lord wills. And it's not weird. The Bible says it. I think it's appropriate for us to even verbally say, hey, let's go to uh, Chick-fil-A on Monday if the Lord wills. And you're like, why do you keep saying it? But Because as you say it over and over, you are taking what you're saying and connecting it to your brain and heart and realizing and constantly reminding yourself, um, the Lord is in control here. And I don't get to do my will. Instead, I should do his. If the Lord wills, that's what I want to do. I want to do his will, not mine. And so <coughs> it's good for us to actually say out loud, if the Lord wills. Now, you can think, well, if the Lord wills, then what I should do is just kind of sit back and be a passive person and never do anything. Just always kind of be looking around the corner to think about if God's willed something. And then maybe I'll do that. And I'll just be a really passive person waiting for the will of God to really be evident and obvious to me. And that's when I should do it. And that's not the case. I mean, if you just read the book of James, you'll know there are plenty of commands to obey. There are plenty of active things. My voice is going away. There are plenty of active things. I got sick this week. I probably should get some water on that one. Uh, You can hear my voice sounds a little different, hopefully. Also... Maybe I'm still going through puberty (laughs) at 40, whatever it is, four. All right. Um, You know, the other day, this is so off the track. The other day I realized uh, it was when I was 43. uh, I'm getting the story wrong. Basically, I lived an entire year and I didn't realize that that was my age. And so I was 42 and then I thought I was 44 And then I was like, wait a second. After I finally turned 44, I realized the entire time that I thought I was 44, I was really 43. And I could have been a year younger the whole time, the whole year. And I was like, wait, now I'm 44. Oh, I missed out on 43. Anyway, that had nothing to do with anything. So back to this. Um, James is filled with active commands for us to obey. And so when we say, if the Lord wills, it doesn't mean that we should just kind of passively sit by and just... Try to think that there's going to be some storm cloud that's going to, you know, shoot down on you and say, Lord's will's right here, Fud. Like, oh, then I should do it. I'm going to, only waiting for the Lord's will. Instead, um, there's lots of active things just in the book of James that we can constantly do. And so we live not trying to accomplish our will, but his, because we're not going to be here forever. So it's all about our attitude, Not, not, not in the negative sense of attitude, but like the actual concept of attitude. It Our attitude matters. The way that we think matters. It means that we live with an acute awareness of this particular Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're always aware that I am here to do his will and not my own. As Sam Alberry says, I am not the captain of my soul. I am not the master of my destiny. This means that we don't try to accomplish our own will. Instead, 
we try to accomplish God's. So everything you're going to do, just think about what you want to do this month, next, this week, new job, going to get married, whatever. Like think about the next month, week, year that you have, week, month, year that you have planned. You have a plan. These are my things I want to do. These are the things I want to accomplish. Before you try, think to yourself and pray, Lord, are these your will? Because I've got some things I want to do here. I think they're good. If they're sinful, don't do them. (laughs) If they're not sinful and you have plans, all I'm saying is, God, I'm going to, I'm going to try these things, but, but nevertheless, I'm going to ask you now before I get started, are these your will for me to do? Should I have even started planning these things? He'll answer through the power of the Holy Spirit. As you read every day through the scriptures, he'll give you an answer. And if he does, and when he does, if you have plans that are not in his will, don't do them. You have this tiny little missed life. All of your short vapor life should be for him, not for you. So, As Sam Alberry says, this reality affects more than just how we plan. It also needs to shape what we plan. It's not just the contingency, but the content of our plans need to reflect the sovereign rule of God. The 24 hours in the day are not mine to use as I please. God has given them to me and I am to use them as he wants me to use them. So the third thing that we know, am I really persevering in the faith? Are you submitting all of your, your, your plans to his will, not your own? Last one is in verses 16 and 17. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows, this is key, the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So you want to ask a question, am I persevering? Are you still living like you're in control? Are you boasting? Are you arrogant? That's evil. That's sin. And so to... To help, I think, understand what he's trying to get at at 16 and 17. If you want to know if you're persevering, here's, here's how you know. For, number four, you have a passion to actively and passively stop sinning. To stop actively and passively. You, you don't want to have sins of commission and you don't want to have sins of omission. Both. The commission ones are easy. Don't do that. I know I'm not supposed to. What I do matters. Don't have sexual moral thoughts. Okay, I'm not going to do those. But also what you fail to do matters. When God tells us not to neglect the poor and you just don't have time in your schedule, that's a sin of omission. You're failing to do things that God tells you to do as well. And so we should not um, just have sins of commission, but we should also not have sins of omission, failing to do things. Sam Alberry says it this way. It's pretty, it's pretty helpful. But if we know God, we should know the good we're supposed to be doing. God has shown it to us. To, to say at that point, God, my schedule's full, that is sin. As it says in James four seventeen, to not make time and space for the good things that we ought to be doing is sin. So fill in the blank right now on the right things that you know the Lord is leading you to do. If you just say, I can't do those right now. This is sins of omission. I'm omitting my life to, to do these things. And if you fail to do these things, this is sin. And so how do you know if you're persevering in the faith? You have a passion to stop doing active sin, sins of commission, and a passion to stop doing sins of omission, like the I don't like that I fail to do the things that God tells me. David Platt on this text says this, to make 
seriousness of sins of omission more clear. Imagine someone who claims to be a Christian but lives sexual immorality. Even when confronted with the word over and over and over again, the word says not to do this, not to commit sexual immorality, Romans 13, 13, to flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 16, 6, 18. He deliberately does what God says over and over. He says not to do it. This is eternally serious sin, especially when God says the sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. Those are sins of commission. But what about the person who sees repeatedly, now he's going to switch over to omission, but what about the person who sees repeatedly in God's word that we should care for the poor, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor and, and they don't do anything? If we continually ignore and disregard this command, then according to James, this too is sin. And the consequences are just as severe as the other. As we've seen in Matthew 25, Jesus actually tells people who have ignored the poor to depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This should cause us to realize it is eternally serious to ignore the poor. Faith that lasts is obedient to the will of God. In other words, all things that he's told us, not just sins of commission, but sins of omission, we want to see all those things stop in our life. And there's no excuses for us. My schedule's too full. Well, unfill it. Same for me, right? I'm not just saying that to you. The same for me. Unfill it. And so the way that we know we're persevering is that we have a deep desire, a deep passion to stop sinning. Are you going to be perfect at that? No, you're not. And we're going to talk about the gospel here in just a second. There's really good news about perseverance of the saints. But right now, I want you to feel this. Because this morning, all the things that you've said, all the things that I've said, if they've hit you, if they've made you think... Um, I don't want you to just kind of hear them say, okay, man, that was, that was something I should think about. And then by the time you're out in your car today, you've totally forgot. Right now, what you're hearing and, and how you'll think about this later on when you put, lay your head on your pillow, that's real life. This is real life right now. And it matters. It matters big time. You need to feel because it's happening all around you. And you could be missing out on this mist of life that you have by banal things that are going on, just things that don't matter. And so look deep inside your heart and think about your life and know that it's short. And as you, <coughs> as you survey your heart and as you think about what you really want to do with your life, that's the Lord God speaking to you saying, these are the things that you should do. Follow me, that he's worth it, that he's worthy of all this. So I want to, I want to close with some pieces of advice, my, my thoughts here. One, you should have a passion to, these won't be on the screen. You should have a passion to know and to love the word of God. Let me read a Luther quote to you about how important it is to know the word. And Luther's writing in context saying that the people all around him love reading church fathers, but they forget to read the Bible. He says this, the holy writings the writings of all the Holy Fathers should be read only for a time in order that through those writings, they may lead us back to the actual Holy Scriptures. As it is, however, we read those Holy Fathers only to find ourselves absorbed in those things and never actually come over to the Scriptures. We're like men who study the signposts and never travel the road. Dear brothers, dear the dear fathers wish by their writings to lead us back to the scriptures, but we use their holy writings to be led away from the scriptures, though the scriptures should alone be our only vineyard in which we work and toil. And so since our life is just a mist and we should know and love the word, if there's anything in life that you should know as a Christian, it should be the Bible. 
Nothing else matters. Don't spend your time in Netflix and politics. If there's anything that you should know more than anything else, it's not even Grudem systematic. It's the Bible. Spend your time toiling in his word. Next, we should have a passion for the lost. We should know his word. We should have a passion for the lost. We should have a deep desire to see people that don't know Christ come to know Christ. I got to go fast. I'm sorry. The next one, we should have a deep passion for believers around us to grow. If there's a Christian that you know around you and they're your friend and they're in this church family with you, you should want them to grow spiritually. However time that God gives you per week to see them, whether it's just an encouraging text or a good conversation at community group, you should want to say words to them that help them grow spiritually. Not just small talk. I'm I'm bad at small talk. Small talk's okay. I know it's, it's fine. We need to talk about the weather and our shoes and our grass and stuff. But, but nevertheless, we should also want to say words that make believers around us grow. A deep desire to see believers around us grow. Also, we should enjoy, crave, have intense feelings about worshiping Jesus we should love it whenever we get to come together and sing together, but also when we go and live a lifestyle of worship. Deeply, deeply within us, we should love the idea and the concept of being able to worship Jesus corporately and with our life. Also, all of our, our, all of our decisions, this is number five, are not just guided, but in a sense are made by Jesus. We want all of our decisions to not just have the guidance of Jesus, but in essence made by Jesus because he gives us his word. Um, Romans 12.1. I have text for every single one of these things, but I just don't have time. But I am going to read Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron, right? Sacrifices aren't usually alive, but that's how we count ourselves. We know that we're still alive, but we have sacrificed ourselves holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So therefore, since we are counting ourselves dead, even though we're alive, the person that made us alive, Jesus, he makes the decisions now. That's the point. That our decisions aren't just guided by, but in essence, made by Jesus. Lastly, we should have a longing for heaven. There should be within us a deep longing to be in heaven so that we can see Jesus and so that one day when we know that happens, we will stop sinning. We know that we'll stop sinning. So perseverance of the saints. How do you know that you're, going to be that you're going to persevere in the faith? How do you know it's going to happen? Philippians 1, 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work, that's your salvation, in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Whenever you die, Jesus will bring it to completion. So how do you know you're going to persevere? Back to, back to the big concept. God's going to see it happen. You still, and I still, we still have a responsibility day in, day out to live like mists. But nevertheless, ultimately it's going to happen because he is going to bring it about. R.C. Sproul says it this way. This is so helpful. This is so helpful. So that God gets all the glory. I think this little catchphrase, perseverance of the saints, is dangerously misleading. It suggests that the perseverance is something that we do, perhaps in and of ourselves. Now, he's contradicting my entire sermon, but that's okay. Because the Bible lives in, in, in conflict here. We still have a responsibility. He's talking about the, the ultimate uh, sense in which God uh, is in control. He says, I believe the saints do persevere in the faith. 
and that those who have been effectually called by God and have been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit endure to the end. However, they persevere not because they're so diligent in making the use of mercies of God. The only reason that we can give why any of us continue in the faith is because we have been preserved. So I prefer the term preservation of the saints because the process by which we are kept in a state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. My confidence in my preservation is not my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace by the power of his intercession. He is going to bring us safely home. So these things that we're doing, it's a lot of things I told you that you got to do. The reason why you will persevere to the end is because Christ Jesus will preserve us to the end because he he knows that we're incapable of doing these things perfectly. He gave his life to die on the cross for us so that even as we fail throughout sanctification, trying to live out perseverance of the faith, he forgives us. He forgives us. The gospel is the good news that even in sanctification, you and I will fail over and over, but Christ forgives us, fills with the Holy Spirit, and helps us march forward Helps us march forward. And we know that the reason why we march forward is not because I'm finally getting it right, but instead because the Lord in his mercy is continually showing us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So ultimately, we persevere because Jesus Christ died on the cross and the Lord is gracious. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that as we... uh, Take the Lord's Supper now as we think on your body broken, your blood shed, so that we can be forgiven and receive grace upon grace, that we would just be absolutely amazed. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us day in, day out, um, strive to live out our sanctification, that we would live for Christ, we would realize life is short, that we would seek to do your will and not ours, and we would kill all sin. But ultimately, all these things are possible because of Jesus. And that we give him all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to go into a